vacation day, rest, hear from you and your word and walk in the reality of it in our lives. And I pray, although we recognize the cross, there is profundity within it that we have yet to delve. We pray, Lord, you would do that today in our lives, that you would reveal yourselves in new ways and we would see the great love that you have for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in our series in Discovering the Real Jesus, we arrived to this event which Jesus has had his eyes set for so, so long. In Luke's gospel, it says he set his face toward Jerusalem. And so Jesus was laser-focused on this task which he had to do for us. And so in John's gospel, you know, from verse chapter 12 to this point, has all been Holy Week. And we arrive here today, and we see some great truths that if we'll proclaim them, we'll find out what abundant and flourishing life in Jesus is all about. So I encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19. We're also going to look at it in light of Psalm 22. Because Psalm 22 was written a thousand years earlier, and it's echoed in John 19. Because if you're really going to understand the cross, it is done in comparison with Psalm 22, because Jesus uttered these words. And it's fascinating, because here in Psalm 22 that we just prayed, we pray the Psalms, by the way, right? We just don't read them. We pray them to the Lord. And so we noticed in verse 7 and 8 that we just prayed is describing a public execution. But as for me, I am a worm and no man, scorned by all and the outcast of the people. I'm on page 5 of your bulletin. All those who see me laugh me to scorn. They curl my lips and shake their heads, saying... He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him if they will have him, right? It's out in the open. This person is dying. And we're told in verse 17 that this person is so emaciated that you can count the bones of his body. It's a terrible thing. Verse 15, we're told that this person is so thirsty, not just a little thirsty, that his tongue is so swollen that he can't even swallow. And the most shocking verse of all is verse 16 through 18. For many dogs have come about me, and the counsel of the wicked lays siege against me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They, they stand staring and looking upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now this is a psalm of David. If you look in your ESV Bible, uh, the heading will say a Psalm of David. Um, And now there were many times in David's life where he was hunted and persecuted. And here's what's different about this Psalm than all the other Psalms of David. There's a public execution within it. You, You cast lots only for someone who's absolutely, utterly abandoned and, uh, for the clothing that was sold after the person was dead was part of the executioner's pay. 
the piercing of the hands and the feet, the public staring and the mocking and laughing as you're dying of thirst and run through with a spear of iron. Where'd that happen in David's life? It didn't. He's prophesying here. And all the other places where David is in trouble when you read the Psalter, right? He's calling down God's justice. He's calling down God's vengeance and wrath upon the perpetrators. But here in Psalm 22, the speaker is bowing in submission to justice. This isn't David at all. The most amazing part of this mystery is at the end, which I didn't have us read. For after all, this psalm is 31 verses. You're welcome. All right. Um, We didn't pray all 31, but you get to the end of it. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. All the nations will come and would turn to the Lord. But it's not until John 19 that we truly get there. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. In fact, without the cross, there's no solution to the mystery of Psalm 22. I wonder what it was like for someone in 300 BC to read this. And thinking, okay, who is this? It's the Psalm of David. Who is this person being publicly executed? They would have understood that. But in Acts chapter 2, Peter in his famous sermon writes, being a prophet, David foresaw and spoke of the Christ. In other words, in the midst of suffering, I'm sure by the power of the Holy Spirit, David discerned that there was going to be a greater David. There would be a greater sufferer. A greater sufferer who had experienced a greater abandonment than David ever had experienced. A greater deliverance to receive a greater kingdom. So let's look at this. What do we learn from these stereo passages of John 19 and Psalm 22? We learn about Christ's infinite suffering upon the cross for us. Plus, his infinite faithfulness gives us incredible, infinite gifts that if we will place our trust fully in Christ, we'll be blessed beyond words. Let's look at this. First, Jesus' sufferings are infinite. That's the first point. You know, we see in verse 22, and also that Carol just read for us in John 19, a man who's been flogged, he's dying of thirst, fulfilling Psalm 22. He's been run through with his wrists and his hands with iron spikes. He has a crown of thorns on his head and he doesn't cry, ow! He doesn't cry out, my wrists hurt, my feet hurt, I can't breathe, my head hurts because of the crown of thorns. He doesn't cry any of that. What does he cry out? We know in the other Gospels in particular, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is he doing that? Because he's abandoned. This is what stripping means. He wasn't just stripped naked. He was abandoned 
by his heavenly father because he's receiving the penalty for our sin. Our sin, the idea that we're going to run our lives our own way and decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. That's the essence of what the Bible says the human heart feels about God. You know God is okay, right? Um, You know, it's okay as a kind of a source of things. But basically, I want to run away from him as fast as I can because I want to live my life the way I want to live it. That's sin. And so the Bible says, since we were all built for God, we need the face of God. That's the way God created us, to be face-to-face in his presence. We need the presence of God. We need the presence of God the way the green earth needs the sun. You know, if the earth stopped tilting on its axis, half the earth would face the sun, the other half would not. The half that didn't face the sun would absolutely freeze, and the other half would burn up, right? Scientists? That's just Gene being a biology minor, you know? I think that's right. But everything would die, right? And we need the presence of God. Our hearts and our souls need the presence of God like the earth needs the sun. Therefore, it would be the most horrible and yet the most absolutely just and fair punishment God could give us to simply let us have our way, right? You want to go, says God? You can go. Go away from my presence. You can do that. And that would be the worst thing possible. It would be the fairest thing possible. And that's what we see on the cross. Jesus Christ experiencing what we want. Jesus Christ experiencing what we deserve. Total abandonment. Just as if we would lose the sun and would be frozen and destroyed. Jesus Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's lost the face of his father and plunged into absolutely freezing, utter darkness. Eternal darkness of the soul. That's what he's experiencing. Infinite suffering. Far greater than the nails and the thorns and anything else. And you might be thinking, because I know some have, not necessarily among us at Christ Church, but just in case you've ever thought this. Well, he is God, right? He knew he was going to do this, right? He's, doesn't he know about all this stuff? It couldn't have been that bad for him. Have you ever seen an animal suffer? My coonhound major was, we had two dogs. My dog, coonhound major, and a spastic Doberman named Heidi. That was my brother's dog. Heidi was a piece of work, but she was cute. And they loved to play together. And they played very playfully and a little rough, you know, and he would run in full sprint and she would run after him, trying to bite him and wrestle. If you've seen our Bassets, that's what the same thing they do. Just, just run, having a blast. One day my brother took him in the park next to our house and as Major was running, he's running this way, looking back, trying to bite her on the back of the neck, and he crashes into a park bench that's cemented in the ground and broke his femur in half. 
my brother, I wasn't there. My brother said it was the most blood-curdling howl you could ever imagine. And it was awful. It was, it was pitiful, and he suffered. You know, it healed eventually, but he walked with a straight leg the rest of his days. He was happy. But he wasn't the same. But as a pastor, I've also seen one spouse lose the love of his life watching her die in bed. Wouldn't you say that his suffering exceeded the suffering of my dog? Wouldn't you say because of being a human being, because being created in a higher order of self-consciousness, reflectiveness, wouldn't you say the agony of watching the love of his life die is really infinitely greater than the suffering that my dog suffered? Yeah, of course. A higher order of being brings along with it a higher order of suffering. Therefore, Jesus Christ, when he is on the cross, losing the love and the face of his Father, which he had known for all eternity, losing a love infinitely greater than we will ever know, suffered infinitely more than you and I will ever suffer, just as his being is infinitely greater than ours, infinite suffering is what the cross is all about. Infinitely. Secondly, the cross tells us that this infinite suffering is also infinitely faithful to you and I. Verse 22 tells us of this infinite faithfulness. Jesus says, my God, my God. That's covenant language. That's Deuteronomy. We use this on the covenant Sundays like First Communion, what have you. We remind the parents, I will be your God, you will be my people. To call him my God, even when he's, when he's going down into the depths of hell. It's loving language, loyal language. Do you guys ever read Moby Dick? I hated that book. You know, do they read Moby Dick in schools anymore? You know, I, I, I've been looking for an English teacher to say yes, because I didn't, I didn't like it personally, but I love this line. Captain Ahab is going down with the ship, and he grabs the, the whaling spear, and he's spearing Moby Dick as he, Moby Dick is taking the whole ship down, and he says, from hell's heart I stab at thee. I'm in hell, and I still hate you. That's great writing. I, I, I can't write like that. I wish I could. But I remembered it. <laughs> it's the only thing I remember. All right? But it's a metaphor. He's going into the ocean. He's not going literally into hell. But here's Jesus, who's infinitely great. Here's the one person who can say, I'm in hell's heart. I'm experiencing something worse than you will ever experience in hell because I'm infinitely greater than you. But here's what it's really saying. From hell's heart, I still love my Father and I still love you. 
That's perfect obedience. That's perfect faithfulness to us. It's perfect faithfulness to his father. He's not just dying the death we should have died being abandoned. He's living the life he should have lived in perfect obedience. You see? Faithful to the end. Infinite suffering. Infinite faithful. And when we trust in that work for each and every one of us, not trying to do life our way, but we want to do it unto him, those great blessings that we receive, those two things together, infinite suffering plus infinite faithful equals when we trust in Christ alone for our salvation, one, we receive infinite redemption. <laughs> it's not just Jesus dying the death we should have died and living the life we should have lived. It's not just that our sins go to him. His righteousness comes to us. It's not just his suffering pays for our sins, but his faithfulness becomes ours. I quote it at least every two months. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's worth rejoicing about, brothers and sisters. And it's only in Jesus Christ that Psalm 22, the mystery is taken away. The reader can look at this and say, it's not a lie. It's true in Jesus. And it says that people from all over the world will see this at the end of that psalm. They will see the suffering, and when they see the sufferer, they're going to turn to the one true God. And that's happening even today. And the only way that happens is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the solution. We receive that through that infinite suffering and infinite faithfulness. Gives us infinite redemption. And not only that, it also gives us infinite forgiveness. (laughs) You know? Our, Our sin, our shame, were placed upon him. That's what we looked like upon the cross. That should have been us. But that was him. Every Jew wore five pieces of clothing. They had sandals, a turban, a belt, an inner tunic, and an outer robe. So it's easy to surmise what happened here. You obviously have four Roman soldiers I'll take the turban, I'll take the belt, you take the sandals, and you take the outer robe. Well, you got this tunic. It's seamless. It's the most valuable thing. It was the piece of garment that was closest to the skin. And so, realizing it would be foolish to divide the robe, unwittingly they fulfilled the prophecy of verse 18 that we prayed. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Fulfilling Psalm 22. These were cold-hearted, indifferent men. It's bad enough to take a dead man's belongings, but they were gambling over there while while he, in his dying moment, was looking down on his clothes being given away. Gambled for. And they unknowingly captured what an indifferent world to the cross looks like. 
the summer uh, after my senior year in high school, I, I got to play in a phenomenal baseball league. It was so fun. In Washington, D.C., I played for the Washington Home Plate Club, but my coach was a coach from Catholic University, and he was foul-mouthed and ill-tempered. And uh, we were in an interracial team, and it was fun. It was, it was tough competition. But Bruce had this temper that would just go off for hardly anything, you know? And there was one guy on the team that was a Christian. It was a black guy. I forget his name. But he looked at him one time and said, Bruce, you just need to walk with Jesus. And Bruce said, I'd rather walk with bases loaded. That's like these soldiers. Indifferent. Not caring. And they're not forgiven. But you and I in Jesus Christ, even in our indifferent moments, even in our not caring moments, when we run back, that's what, that's what communion is all about, friends. We're welcome back to the table as we are truly repentant, as we prayed our forgiveness at the beginning of the service and truly forgiven. You're truly welcome. Come. Infinite forgiveness. And therefore, that's our motivation for living. Third, what this true gift gives us is an infinite family. Because <laughs> he places us in a family. Look what he does in verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his sister's, mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What you see here is a dual contradiction and affirmation of every culture on the face of the planet. Because here in the West, you know, his mother being an older widow, she had no means of support. And John was going to be his only support. And the whole world was going to come down on him. And yet in his dying hour, he thought of his mother, his earthly mother, that she would be cared for. That says, no, others care. Others matter. We are called to care. And there's even times in our individualistic culture, family is incredibly important. But in the East, living up to your family's expectations is the highest priority. Pleasing your family and fulfilling their expectations is more important than anything else. And that can be just as much as an idol as our radical individualism. And what Jesus is saying here is he places us in a family within the church. People who believe in me, who are in Christ, have a stronger bond than your own blood relatives. Your social class doesn't matter when you come to Christ. Doesn't matter if you're from a good family or a bad family, incredibly godly or incredibly dysfunctional. That doesn't matter as much as the fact that you trust and believe in me, says Jesus. 
So, dear Christian brothers and sisters, everyone who's here is your brother and sister, mom and dad, son or daughter. And no, it's unconditional. Absolutely unconditional. Because even when children mess up, you welcome them back, right? We're glad you're back. It's unconditional. If your family wasn't like that, I'm sorry, but that's the way it should be. It's unconditional love. It's not based on our performance, it's based on his. And secondly, it comes across as a little intense and passionate, doesn't it? You have you had anybody say to you, you're taking this Christian thing a little too seriously? Right? Well, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's her, my brother and sister. That's why it's a gospel culture. You know, that's why we do that welcome every service on Sunday mornings. So everybody knows they're welcome. You know, we had, we had a former member when I first started saying that a couple years ago who walked up to me after the service and said, you're just trying to make us feel guilty. I go, what part of that welcome is making you feel guilty? He said, for all who are struggling in their walk with Christ and need strength. I go, you, you don't struggle and you're, you're a perfect disciple? Is that what you're saying to me? No, you're just trying to make me feel bad. I said, well, don't confuse condemnation with Holy Spirit conviction. Haven't seen him since. Maybe I should have said it differently. I don't know. But the reality is, my friends, this is good news. We're in a family, and it's not a perfect family. There's no perfect people here. And we're all welcome no matter where we are on our journey. So let me ask you a question. When was the time in your life you turned from the way you wanted to live and placed your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ? How has that lived out in your life beyond going to church? Which is a good thing. The difference I have noticed between those who struggle with that answer and those who really don't struggle with that answer that much, but they might struggle with certain aspects of the Christian life because that's called welcome to the Christian life. (laughs) The difference is those who wonder at the cross. So may I suggest to you, using our prayer book to help guide you in your time of prayer, it's filled with scripture. And you'll notice as you pray it back to the Lord, it, will, it directs you to the cross all the time. All the time. It's beautiful, and it helps you wonder the cross. And if you find yourself getting stale in your prayers, I would suggest get your, your, your hands onto the Valley of Vision. This was written by Puritans. Several of which, which were Anglicans. Didn't realize some Puritans were Anglicans, right? They were. Who were these people? Well, about a hundred years after the Reformation, there was a whole movement within that was arguing about ways we worship and what have you, but we had a lot more in common with Presbyterians and Baptists than we did with Roman Catholicism and even what eventually came out to be Anglo-Catholics. We got a lot in common with them, especially those of us who are low church evangelicals. The Valley of Vision is a collection of prayers of Puritans. Richard Baxter wrote several of these things. And this is where I got the word infinite for this sermon. 
because I'm coming up from my workout Thursday morning, and as I'm coming up, I'm sweating, I'm drinking my water. Kimmy walks up to me and goes, read this, you know, and it's called, I, so I put my glasses on, and I go, love lusters at Calvary. So she went upstairs to get her workout clothes on, because that's where our mornings go, you know. And these words help me, and I know they'll help you, if we have hearts, to, hearts that are soft to the reality of this cross, will warm our affections to our Lord together. It starts off with, My Father, enlarge my heart. Warm my affections. Open my lips. Supply words that proclaim love lusters at Calvary. Their grace removes my burdens and heaps them on thy son. Made a transgressor, a curse, and sin for me. There the sword of thy justice smote the man thy fellow. There the infinite attributes were magnified and infinite atonement was made. There infinite punishment was due and infinite punishment was endured. It continues on for a while, proclaiming the attributes and the love of God, but it closes like this. O Father, who spared not thine only Son, that thou might sparest me. All this transfer thy love designed and accomplished. Help me to adore thee by lips and life. Oh, that my every breath might be ecstatic praise. My every step buoyant with delight as I see my enemies crushed. Satan baffled, defeated, destroyed. Sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood. Hell's gates closed. Heaven's portal open. Go forth, O conquering God, and show me thy cross. Mighty to subdue, comfort, and save. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a treasure it is to look at the cross as a community together this morning. We are so grateful for it that in this infinite, infinite faithfulness that you have and infinite suffering, you give us infinite redemption, infinite forgiveness placing us in an infinite family. And Lord, we thank you for that family. That you've given that to us. And that these family relationships can work now because you've taken away our shame and taken away our need to wear a mask continually. This is not a perpetual Halloween that we can live authentically with one another in your kingdom. And all that's true because of the gift you give us that you were willing to suffer for us upon the cross. And you were willing to take away everything that was on, uh, on us and against us. And it's in Jesus Christ we have the gift of faith and amazing grace upon us. Thank you, Lord. And so, Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we remind ourselves that we are a family because it is a table. In fact, families gather around the table. And we pray that we would remember 
that we're made a family because of Jesus suffering upon that cross. And we're so grateful for that. And we ask that you would shape us through the wonder of your cross. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.